this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Next up, you're going to hear from Jeffrey Feldberg and Stephen Wells, the co-founders of Embanet, which they built over a seven-year period to $18 million of EBITDA. They ultimately sold the company for 13 times EBITDA for a final result of more than $200 million. There is so much good stuff in this interview, guys. I don't know where to start. But uh, listen to the way both Stephen and Jeffrey talk about constraints, how they liked being constrained by cash and they kind of take pride in being a cockroach startup in their own words. Uh, I love the way they talk about budgeting and the fact that budgets were something that they learned to hate. Um, They talk about having an eight month cash balance. Jeffrey talks himself about being a control freak. You know, it's a really interesting story when you get into and when we get into the details around the sale and how they use their investment banker to drive up the, the ultimate, ultimate price of the business, talking about how they played one off the other, how they mitigated or minimized the odds that they were going to get a bait and switch deal after an LOI before closing. Lots of good stuff in this interview with Jeffrey Feldberg and Stephen Wells. Jeffrey Feldberg, Steve Wells, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John, good to be here. Hey, John, good to be here as well. So this is the first, this is a, a three-way call, which is great. I understand both of you guys were in, in this business together, Embanet. So maybe, maybe Jeffrey, do you, want to, do you want to start and give us a bit of an overview of, of what Embanet did? What, what was the problem you were trying to solve in the world? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Embanet was an, an evolution. It, it initially started as solving the problem of how do you help schools to get online? And so we, we help schools do the hosting, we help do uh, course conversion, technical support. And we did that so well that our, our customers came back to us and said, hey guys, uh, our retention rates are terrific. We're now the rock stars at the university. But the problem that we're having right now is where do we find the students? We got this thing called the internet that's come along and it's more difficult, more expensive to find students. And it, it was because we listened to the customers, we had regular conversations, uh, we were always mindful of, how do we put ourselves out of business? What's gonna be Embanet 2 to put Embanet 1 out of business? Because we, we'd ra- rather be the ones putting ourselves out of business than someone else. And it was really that marketing request, help us fill the seats, that began a, a journey which we had no idea where it would take us or if it would even work. Uh, but through lots of trial and, and error and experimentation, we really perfected a process where at, at the end of the day, what uh, we'd say is, hey, we'll help you fill the seats, keep the seats filled, and ensure that you're profitable from the very first student that you enroll. And we geared that towards high-end institutions like uh, Vanderbilt University, Boston University, George Washington University, and it was just just a, a terrific partnership. So how did you price that model? Was it on a you know, per student basis or? Yeah, we shared in the revenue with the uh, university. So we took on the cost of uh, converting curriculum and marketing and gave the student the same degree that they would get if they're in the classroom. We had some unique ways that we, we structured the curriculum and we had very u- and kind of groundbreaking ways how we found the students. And then we shared in that revenue um, over a period of time. And how did you guys deal with the emergence of the the kind of uh, fake diploma that you know you're right away to some PO box in you know Tucson Arizona and you get like all of a sudden you're a you're a you're a doctor of law or whatever uh, doctor of law doctor of medicine or, or or a lawyer how did you did you guys fight against that the 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 uh, 
emergence of this sort of sleazy underbelly of on online education? You know, I, I the for us the the magic of being an entrepreneur is to take what's out there, what's topical, what's a big problem for many people, and to feel that pain and to solve it. Uh, so that came out. It was a big issue in the industry, but for us, the timing was perfect. Because here we were, we were really serving two audiences. One audience was the working professionals. So people like us who have a full-time gig going, they can't go back to school, but they wanted a degree to advance their career, uh, to take it to the next level, uh, maybe for vanity reasons, but they wanted it from a legitimate uh, school and they just couldn't do that. And on the flip side, the institutions uh, wanted to uh, get out to that audience uh, set the record straight and and continue their dominance. And it, on both ends, it was, well, how do we do this and, and how do we make that happen? And that's really where we entered. We were the matchmaker to put these two audiences, these two groups together in a way that worked for everyone, that brought legitimacy, uh, the real re results. And we did it in uh, as painless as a manner as you can. And, and you know, John, just uh, quickly, the, the obstacle for us was not that impression that we were providing uh, uh, to, the, to the consumer. The, the original obstacle was we were probably, if not a new category, groundbreaking and, and very unique. They were afraid to adapt uh, a, a new uh, delivery system. So we had to convince top tier universities, like Jeffrey had mentioned, that this is a legitimate way to uh, to have education and your outcomes aren't going to be any less. In fact, they'll, they'll, they'll be better and they did end up better. So we were kind of in a unique space. So let me get this straight. So, so you go to a university who's got content and who's trying to get online and you would say, look, we'll underwrite the costs of developing the online course, basically interpreting your content in, in an online context. And we'll also underwrite the cost of getting students and then on the back end, we'll share the revenue. Correct. That, that, that's correct. So it sounds like an expensive business model. How did you guys finance it? It's a, it's a, it's a great question and, and a good story. And, you know, one thing, John, just to make very clear uh, to the listeners, uh, that was the end result. Um, but there was a lot of failure. We, we didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, this is how uh, it's, it's going to be done. We tried a lot of things and and failed a lot. And to tie into your question from uh, Embinet One, uh, to take the, the profits, we, we had just turned the corner in Embinet One. It had been five years in, in the making, uh, finally started to to put some profits away and and have a nice, um, a nice little war chest. And then we, we put that all at risk again when we did the Embinet 2 and, and to get things out there. Uh, and it, uh, trial and error, we, we eventually um, found the way and were able to do that. But we did two things. We, we bootstrapped the company from beginning to end and we ran what would now be called as a cockroach startup. So we were lean and mean and, and a fighting machine in, in every sense of the word, watched every penny. And it, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I don't want to go off topic here, but it's worth mentioning uh, when uh, Steve and myself have done other ventures and, and we haven't had those financial constraints, we haven't been as successful in, in those ventures. Uh, so a lot of entrepreneurs are saying, hey, if I don't have the money, I can't be successful and I can't do a business. Uh, but for us, it was the opposite. Those constraints were everything because it, it took us to a place we probably would never have gotten to had those not been in place. So essentially, you funded the the movement into Embinet 2. You took cash that, from the Embinet 1 business and, and funded the, the, the new business. That's correct. And and we also built the business in maybe a, a way that's kind of controversial to some specific bean counters. I mean, we we didn't run off budgets. Uh, for instance, when we were really going fast and furious, we would tell our marketing managers, listen, you can spend however much money you want. You have no limit. All you we have to do is prove the model. And we had a very rigorous uh, methodology for finding an audience, proving it, testing it, failing a lot. Then when we were ready to pull the trigger, we were with the 95% uh, predictable results. So um, we knew what we were going to get. So um, that we we're very disciplined in how we did that, but we we're very, very free on uh, on how we would spend that money because, you know, you don't want to spend too much. We don't spend too little, but we will find those results. 
And John, just a, a quick story, and, and Steve, I'm sure you'll, you'll have a chuckle with this. So Steve oversaw the the marketing, and uh, you know we would always be testing different things. And as the company grew and, and we had uh, more employees that uh, became part of the team, you can only do so much. So uh, Steve, I don't know if you remember, but there was a very short period of time where we actually said, okay, you know what? Why don't we try what the bigger companies do? We'll put some budgets in place. And I'll never forget, uh, we, we had this one marketing manager uh, who was getting dismal results. I, I won't name the, uh, the source of where we're marketing, uh, you know, that particular company, but it, it was failing every single time. Yet every single month, she kept on putting in the same amount of money. And when Steve found out about this, he pulled her aside and said, hey, what's up? What's going on? Well, you know, I, I have this budget and, and I know if I don't spend the budget, it's going to be reduced the next time. So I just keep on putting it there so I can spend my budget because that's the money that you gave me. And uh, we, we had a good chuckle. We we uh, abolished budgets that day and went back to just spending as was was needed and uh, just kept on growing. How did you guys, I mean, I mean, the obvious question is, how did you guys not go bankrupt? I mean, <laughs> without budgets, without any sense of sort of how you're spending one month the next. I mean, how are you kind of keeping the lights on? It's, uh, again, it, it, a great question, John. And it, it's something that we spoke a lot about. When we did Embinet 2, we looked around and we said, okay, what's going on in the marketplace? How can we survive? What can we do? So the, the first rule of thumb that we had was we always like to have enough cash for at least eight months to operate so that if no revenue came in through whatever unforeseen emergency, we could operate for eight months. But the next thing that we said, look, um, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. And Embinet One had really been more for the, the budget conscious type of uh, consumer, if you will. Uh, it wasn't expensive. Uh, it was a grind every single day. So for Embinet Two, we said, let's, let's start from the top. Let's work with the best. Let's have a high ticket item and let's do whatever we can to become as profitable as, as we can. And one of the things that, that we did uh, very specifically, we were both the, the uh, seller of our services, but we were also the manufacturer of our services and everything was virtual. So it, it gave us the, the advantage for that. But here's what that meant. We charged fair market value. In fact, we probably were even charging a little bit less than what market value would be. But because we were in control of everything and we manufactured everything, in, in many ways it was like the Apple model, uh, the, the profits were significant. So there was a big upfront investment, no two ways about it, to, to get a school up and running. But once the school was running, because we had revenue coming in and, and cash flow, and it would drive the bean counters nuts because we didn't follow the, the gap, the, uh, you know, the general acceptable accounting principles, we were able to float the company through the cash flow until we were able to get into profits. And once we're into profits, we, we never looked back and we were able to build up a, a nice war chest. And did you ever take on any outside investors? We, no. We, we never did. No. And that was very deliberate. Why? I, you know, um, I, I won't speak for Steve. I, I'm just a control freak. And, um, uh, you know, for, for me, I didn't want other people to come in to tell us what to do, how to do it. And for, for myself as an entrepreneur, I, I've always wanted to just change the social fabric of society. I, I love to help people. That's really my DNA. And Embinet was a way for me to combine my love of technology, my love of education, and my love for helping people. And I didn't want to sacrifice the experience, even though I knew that came at a cost. And, and the cost was we didn't grow as quickly, but we had full control to do whatever we wanted to do and to either fail as much as we wanted to or become successful as much as we wanted to. So for myself, that was important. But, you know, Steve, what, what about yourself? What would you? Well, you know, I, I agree. And, and, you know, we had some other experiences after Embinet where we had plenty of money and we had some failures there. And this has been my experience that I don't think money is ever the issue on success. Certainly, you might have to finance. You might have something, some capital costs. But I, I think sometimes money really clouds the issue where lack of money makes you very, very focused and you are very attuned to what is going to bring you the most value, maybe the quickest. So, you know, we're a service business. I mean, we weren't really manufacturing, so it might may, may give us some uh, some advantages in that way. But, um, you know, that would be my experience. And, and walk us through sort of the evolution. How big did you get Embinet before 
you decided to sell? You know, big, I mean, in terms of revenue or you know, number of employees, that kind of stuff. Steve, you want to you want to grab uh, grab sure, that one? Remember, sure. Sure. Uh, um, you know, th that's another. We're a little bit counter um, thinking. In those were metrics that were important, but they, we looked at the bottom line before we looked at the top line. So um, th that's how we kind of judged our success, and and we measured our marketing if not daily, weekly, and our costs. So we were looking at a lot of metrics, but maybe different metrics than people look. At, at the end of the day, um, when we, and we'll talk about why we sold later if you'd want, but we were running around 200 employees. Um, we had built that up in about seven years, I believe. I think that was right, uh, Jeffrey. And um, we had an EBITDA of around um, something like 18 million. Just incredible performance. I mean, that's that's on its on its face. That's just an incredible performance in seven years to go from basically, and and that seven years was dates back to the beginning of Embedded One, or is that when you made the conversion to Embedded Two? That was Embedded Two. Got it. G and, Jeffrey, and you know, go, uh, ahead. Go, go ahead, Steve. No, I was going to just say, Jeffrey, you'd already started Embedded One, but go ahead. Uh, right. Uh, so, so Embedded One again was a very different model, uh, and and had had its own um, set of circumstances. But the, the the one thing I would just put out there to the business owners, and it, it was something very, very deliberate for both myself and Steve. We never cared to be the biggest company. We cared to be the best and the most profitable, and that really was was the focus. Uh, and Embedded to the marketplace was an enigma. Because relative to our competition, we were a fraction of the size. But when you looked at our profits, we were a giant in the industry and uh, probably one of the best kept secrets in the industry, which was deliberate at the time. And, and we can talk about the, the pros and cons a little bit later uh, of that. But for us, the focus was never what's the top line, because, listen, you, you can be a hundred million dollar company. But if your expenses are 105 million, it doesn't mean anything. An important lesson for sure. So let's get into the why you sold. I mean, <laughs> generating eighteen million dollars a year is not a bad uh, paycheck for anybody. But like, what was it that made you consider exiting? Steve, you want to start and I'll sure. Yeah, I'll I'll, there, are, there are some points, but yeah, I mean, first when we when we looked at where we were, um, we were we were in a we started in a blue ocean. I mean, we we I, we weren't the very first people to create online learning, but we created it in the model in in a very unique way that really was hardly done if done at all. So by the time we'd gone downstream a ways, we looked at it and we thought, well, you know, we're kind of at the top of the bubble. Bubble. We we kind of we see some competition coming in. We had a very attractive business model. We had ten year contracts, um, and we thought, you know, this may not be the way that things are going to go in the future. So you know that that was one one of one one point, and I'll give one more, and then Jeffrey, there's you can you can pick it up from there. We also looked at our our skill set. I mean, we are entrepreneurs. Um, we 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 got that company to a size, and we're looking around and going, "Wow, um, you know what what's going to be required going forward to build this?" We're we're kind of zero to something type guys, and we're already at something you know substantial something. And you know, how do we go further? I mean, what's going to be required? So yeah, I'll, I'll let you continue from there, Jeff. You know, similar to to Steve, John, uh, those and and the other few things that that I would add, and and Steve touched upon it, but it it's really worth digging into. Uh, you know, when I I first began as an entrepreneur, I I never understood entrepreneurs who had a business and they deliberately kept it at a certain size, and never went beyond that. Because in my mind, it was, hey, if you have something successful. Go, 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 build it, get it out there, get it um, to the top and, and do as much as you can. But to that point, uh, what we quickly realized was to go from where we were to the next level would require a huge amount of capital. Not that we didn't have the capital coming in and, and that we could have done that. We, we could have. But at the same time, we said, okay, what are our strengths? I've never been a believer in taking my weaknesses and, and trying to make them bigger. I've always played to my strengths and ignored my weaknesses. And the whole corporate march, uh, if you will, running a corporation and uh, becoming a bigger corporation, for me, I'd be like a bird in, in the cage. And so when we 
uh, we'd have regular meetings, we'd have vision meetings, and, and we spoke about it. We said, okay, where do we see this going in the next five years, in the next 10 years? What's MBNet 3 going to look like? And when, when we looked at that, we realized, okay, for us to continue growing, uh, likely there's going to have to be some acquisitions that will be in the mix to get that out there. Uh, because we're successful, competitors are now going to start coming in. It's going to start becoming crowded. And so we, we identified what MBNet 3 was going to be. And we said to ourselves, okay, let's hedge our bet. We can begin to do MBNet 3, but at the same time, let's at least consider what it would be like to sell the company. And sell the company either to have people come in and take it to the levels where it's not our strengths, but would be their strengths and be involved or, or do an outright sale. And that really began our, our journey where we, we hedged everything and, and did a number of different strategies at the same time. So when you're generating $18 million a year in EBITDA, are you able to pull out, from a lifestyle perspective, a, a, a big chunk of money um, for yourselves, or are you pouring all that money back into the business, into growing the company? I mean, how's your lifestyle evolving as this business goes from nothing to $18 million in profit? I, you know, for, for myself, it, it, it mod, modestly changed, but not a, a whole lot. Uh, for me, it was growing the company, supporting the company, keeping, just keeping the money in, in the company. Uh, sure, I, I drove a nicer car. Yes, I lived in, in a larger house, uh, but that was the extent of it. Uh, for myself, it wasn't anything crazy. Steve, you're the guy who blew it all. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went to Vegas and uh, Jeffrey came and flew out and bailed me out. No, um, you know, um, we are uh, a little bit different in age. When we sold the company, Jeffrey was 37, I was 51. So, you know, we're we're in a little bit different places in our life. Um, I, I had been through a lot of companies that I had and, and, you know, I didn't really know how to monetize a company and, 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 you know, what you're doing, John is, is what I kind of needed back then, you know, they'd start things, stop things. And, you know, so when we got to, when I got to this point, I was very, very excited about the possibilities that we had, we'd come upon. And, you know, we also, we, while we, we, we were very profitable and we did give ourselves funds, uh, we kept the company hungry. So, you know, while we had a lot of money, we didn't really want to throw it back in there because we, again, we, as you can tell, our philosophy is, you know, hungry people make wise decisions and work hard. And we, we kept ourselves and we kept everybody else hungry because it, it kind of gave us the edge, we felt. Well, so, OK, so if you're not giving it to the company and you're not drawing it out personally, where's the money? Well, I mean, we're holding it. I mean, we are, we're not, we're not re we're not completely reinvesting it back into the company. We're not completely just uh, liquidating it for ourselves either. I mean, we're, we're kind of holding it. I find it. John, let, let, Go ahead. Let, let's just say, uh, let, let's just say that, um, you know, when you need the banks, they don't give you the time of day. And uh, fortunately it was the flip side. Uh, our door was being knocked down by the banks, as you can imagine, because we were uh, cash rich in wanting to work with us. So life is funny. We didn't need the banks and they were only too happy to uh, to work with us. Um, but it was, I mean, let, let's not kid ourselves either. Um, it, it, uh, to say that it, it wasn't a grind, um, you know, it just wouldn't be what, what it was. It, it was uh, hard work. It took uh, a lot of our time and our attention. And, and something that, that Steve mentioned earlier that's worth revisiting we really created a new category, and uh, it's not that we weren't uh, we, we weren't the first to invent it or to do it, but the way that we put it together, the way that we went to the marketplace with it, really was a new category. And like anything, when you're creating a new category or a new anything, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of travel, it's just a lot of effort to get people to understand what it is to accept you and embrace you, so that you can get out there and work your magic. I find this fascinating, the age difference between the two of you guys, because from what I've experienced, when there's an age gap between two partners, there can be you know, different priorities based on the company. So a, a cliche would be the older of the two would, would like to draw out more money to fund a more lavish lifestyle. They're at a different stage in life. Maybe they got more expenses and they're just at a stage where they feel like they've kind of earned it. Whereas the younger of the two partners often wants to kind of put all the money back in and keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. Did you guys struggle as a partnership with any of those sort of decisions? 
you know, we it, it was interesting. There, there's actually a third partner, and just to, to put it out there, uh, it was the the wife of, at the time, and now my ex-wife. Um, so Steve, it was an interesting dynamic because the two of us were obviously younger than uh, than Steve, but amongst the three of us, uh, we never got into uh, an argument. There were never it, we would agree to disagree, but it was done for what's best in in the business, and we'd always talk things through. And because the three of us really came from different perspectives, um, so Steve, uh, his archetype was really known as the the teacher, the educator. Uh, Waleska, uh, she was known, uh, she was a third business partner, she was really known as the prophet. Uh, my archetype was the money guy. And amongst the, those three archetypes, it just worked really well within the partnership to say, okay, what's best for the company, what's best for the partnership, what's best for us. And it it just worked. Uh, you know, the, the chemistry, either you have it or you don't. Uh, we were blessed that when we um, came together as partners, uh, that was there to begin with. Otherwise, obviously, it, it would not have worked and, and it would have been an issue. Steve, from your perspective? Yeah, no, you know, our relationships uh, and relationship now are, is very unique, I think, in business. And and I, you hear about a lot of people having difficult partnerships. Our, we, we just made magic. We complement each other and we're similar in some ways. We're different in other ways. We can do a show like this and not even talk to each other really about it. And you can kind of see we, we kind of know what the other person is thinking. And, and, and we just we function together. And, and I think um, when we have two people in this case – we can make a, we can make that third entity even better than we could have done uh, individually. And of course, back then we had three. So I think all three of us made something that no, no one as an individual could have could have accomplished as, as well. Jeffrey, at what point did you divorce your former spouse? Before oh, from, from from the business of the personal, yeah. Um, yeah. it uh, <laughs> it uh, it came out well after the sale. Um, but uh, uh, everything it, it was very friendly. Uh, to this day, uh, we're still business partners in uh, in other areas, and and uh, oh, wow. all uh, uh, all is terrific because uh, you know we're, we're business partners. We're also parents, and we never lost sight of that. And uh, uh, since we're on the personal, uh, I uh, it's going to be this upcoming September, two years. Uh, will be my uh, wedding anniversary. Um, I, I got married uh, about a year and a half ago. So, um, but I, everything's been great. Uh, it, it's very unconventional, but but uh, but it works, and uh, everyone is smiling. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, uh, congratulations on your on your marriage, by the way. And I think the reason I was asking was uh, relative to the dynamic of a partnership. Uh, if if you had already made that split. I was curious to how that affected the partnership, the romantic split, if you will. Clearly, it had not happened yet. And I wondered also, Steve, from your perspective, did you ever feel kind of ganged up on? Like <laughs> the two, the two, your two partners, you know, kind of <laughs> lived together. So at some yeah. point, they, they presumably could have ganged up on you or talked about you behind your back. I mean, did you ever feel that way? No, I never did. You, you, I just, you, all of a sudden in my mind, I got this visual. I, I guess I'll tell it. I, it's, it sounds kind of strange. It's not meant to be that way, but we, we functioned, we, we, we functioned so well. I lived in or, or, or still live in Orlando outside Orlando winter park and Toronto is where the company is based. So I'm going up there all the time and, and really out of convenience and, um, just, we were communicating all the time. I would, I stayed with Jeffrey and Waluska in, in their house. Um, I'm, I was on the phone in Winter Park, you know, every day for 15 hours a day and, and communicating. But I would come up there, uh, and which is kind of funny sideline. People would say, I wish you'd go back because we could actually talk to you better when you're back there because everybody wants to see you when you come up. But I would stay in Jeffrey and Waluska's house. And I remember, you remember this, Jeffrey. Um, one time we're all watching. We're, we're, we're like laying on their bed and, and, and the lights okay, are out. Okay, we're watching we're, a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And there's, there's, two big labs there and all of a sudden the movie's over the lights are out and i'm sitting there everyone's asleep and I, i've got to yeah i gotta sneak out of their bedroom not disturbing them but i mean I, I know that sounds weird it wasn't meant to be weird but that's how close we were we lived together in, in a sense of of, of uh, we're, we were on a mission i mean that's the that's the beautiful thing about i know many of your 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 audience you're, you're on a mission and in, in in the midst of that you've got a lot of trials and you, but you'll look back and it was some of those those difficult things that you're going to say well 
well, that's how I learned. That's how I grew the most. And and uh, we, we we had the same same situ- situation. I mean, we're we're fighting every day to to make this thing happen. I love it. You guys went through an interesting. You called it a dry run uh, in the form of an acquisition. Tell us about that story. You 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 got approached by somebody. You know, it was it was still early on when Embedded Two was out there, and we're still proving things and getting things out there. And we had come on the radar of a Fortune 10 company who had approached us. And before you knew it, there there was talks of, "Hey, why don't we see if we can partner together?" And from there, let's see where where that can go. So the the three of us as partners, we we met, we spoke about that, and we agreed on two things. We said, "Okay, we're not ready to sell." But this company approached us. We didn't go to them. Uh, they want to explore and, and see what was going on. So why don't we do it? At, at the at the very worst, we'll spend some time, uh, you know, just going through the process. But at, at the very best, we're going to see where we're weak, where the blind spots are, and we'll come out of it wiser, better, and stronger. And John, I, I got to tell you uh, that when when we did that whole process, and and for everyone who who's listening in. Uh, if you have the opportunity to do it, I would say do it. Yes, uh, it costs some money because we had to get uh, legal and, and accounting involved for reports and, and getting everything ready. But what we learned from from that experience was huge. And, and that actually began our journey because we, we became intrigued and fascinated with, okay, is that really what selling a company is all about? And And if it is, what can we do to better prepare ourselves so that the next time uh, the opportunity comes, we're actually ready. We, we weren't ready for it. Uh, the value would have reflected that had, had we taken that value at the time. And, and I suspect a lot of people uh, may have because they see money and they just can't help themselves. Uh, it, it would have been uh, substantially, you know, uh, much, much lower than, than what we, we had with our nine-figure exit. Um, but the ability to do a dry run for us was everything because it made us smarter, wiser, and more prepared when the real deal came. So let's get into it. So it's a it's a big company that made an acquisition. Um, what 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 did you learn through the process? Like, what was it that wasn't ready for prime time? What parts of your business were were not ready to be sold? Um, I'll jump. Well, I mean, there's there are a lot of things that weren't ready, um, and some that we never really solved completely. Um, but one of them is we didn't have the right data. We had not because, as you you've noticed, we weren't concerned as much of, of running, uh, you know, tight accounting. We had tight accounting, but we weren't getting uh, financial statements, audited financial statements. We, we didn't have what they call when you sell your business, you know, a, a put together data room. You know, just that one point alone uh, is hugely valuable for you to maximize your your exit. What else? You know, I, I would I would say that uh, to, to build off of that point, uh, because of the way that we ran the company, um, company year ends were an afterthought for us. We, we only did it because we had to for tax filing, and you know otherwise we had no use for them. So the whole mindset of the of the company was uh, was different. So financial report wise, we weren't ready. Even the 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 management team, we, we could have done a much better job of of having a a management team that was more of them and less of us uh, over the years. Uh, so that that was something that we really weren't uh, uh, great at at doing. Uh, even with uh, when we began the process, communicating with the employees, uh, you know, you you hear about it, you read about it, uh, but until you get there, uh, it's um, it, it's just a difficult thing to do. And we, we had terrific investment bankers, and and they uh, spoke to us about that and, and helped with that. But you know, looking back, that was one of our, our weaker areas. And you know, the the thing that you have to remember as as a seller. When you're working with an investment banker, and and if you're not working with one, I think you're nuts. I, I think it's it's the only way to go if you want to maximize value for your company. Uh, but the investment banker is like a juggler. They have our interests in mind. They have the buyer's interests in mind. Uh, you know, for for us and and the investment bankers, uh, we're likely a one-time transaction. For the buyers that they're bringing in, it's going to be uh, many transactions. So they have to balance all of that, and and sometimes. Uh, what's in the interest of, of the business or in the interest of the seller may not necessarily be in the interest of, of the process. Uh, so how you communicate with your clients and uh, before and after the sale, you know, all of those. So the, the communication area, uh, you know, and the the whole um, uh, data area, John, would have been areas that we just 
uh, could have done a lot better. And I think well, we, and, we, and just to clarify, John, quickly, um, I, I we, when you're talking about that first um, offer we had, we weren't involved formally, and we didn't have investment bankers. So what Jeffrey was talking about when we had the investment bankers, then um, a lot of those things got in place, obviously, and and they created huge value for us, and 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 found huge potential, and we, we ended up creating an auction for us. So so just I was just trying to clarify that point if it wasn't clear. That's great. And, and I want to make a, a point as well to my listeners. Uh, Jeffrey, you raised a very important point, and that is the investment banker's motivation. So on one hand, you engage an investment banker or an M&A professional. They are, they're mandated to sell your company, uh, but they, that's a one-time transaction. The buyer is someone they might deal with in, on many, many occasions, especially if it's a private equity group, for example, or a corporate buyer is very acquisitive. And they've got to they've got to thread that needle between representing you, but also not being so aggressive that they'll alienate a relationship that that could bear fruit for another transaction down the road. So it's a very delicate balance that they've got to play. Uh, it sounds like it sounds like you you recognize that in the in the second go round. Wait, we you know we recognize that, and and to underscore the point. It took us a year and a half to find the investment banker. I mean, we just went out there and and spoke to a lot of groups and did a lot of research to get to where we got to because we realized from the first experience, hey, left our own devices, we we are our own worst enemy. So let's find someone who does this day in, day out, who's going to uh, protect us as much as one can and just get the value of the company to the highest uh, possible potential. In the dry run, did you guys actually get to a stage for, of a written letter of intent where they put a value on the business, what they were willing to pay? Oh, oh it yeah. was. Uh, yeah. I, uh, look, John, the, the dry uh, run, uh, we call it a dry run, but it was a real deal uh, where, you know, we were flown out to the company's headquarters. We were wined and dined. Uh, they gave us a letter of, of intent and, and then they came with a final offer. Uh, you know, and, and looking back, uh, when we look back now, and, and we knew it at, at the time as well, uh, to them, we were really country bumpkins, you know, uh, from from their from their perspective, hey, we're these big corporate guys, we're a Fortune 10 company, but we got these two entrepreneurs, they don't, they don't quite know what they have, but we do, we know better than them. And so we're just going to, uh, in their world, bowl them over with, with to us, what's not a lot of money, and, and it wasn't. What was that? Uh, and let's... Oh, you, you know, they, they came in, I, I want to say, uh, somewhere at around 8 or $10 million. Uh, see, does that sound, sound about I, right to you? Uh, yeah, I don't remember. I mean, it was like, uh, I mean, not even close to what we ended up, you know, yeah. in the same sphere. I mean, they're looking at like, yeah, uh, I, it was ridiculous, really. But what, I mean, 8 or $10 million on, on the surface for a company less than seven years old, you know, that doesn't sound too bad for a lot of people. Why did you think it was uh, such a poor offer? I, you know, Steve mentioned this and and it's really worth repeating and, and to the listeners out there, Embanet was a way of life. It wasn't just a business. And not only was it a way of life, but we knew where we were and where we were going and, and what was ahead. And when we, we spoke about it, we said, okay, let's, let's, Round it off to even $10 million. I don't think it was that high, but let, let's take $10 million. So, you, you know, three and a bit million dollars uh, per partner. Yes, it's a lot of money and nothing to scoff at, but it's not going to be a game changer. And and it's not going to uh, change our lives where we can just sit back and, and not have to do anything after that. And so when we realized that, we also said, you know what? Um, just because you can hit a home run doesn't mean you're going to hit a home run every time. In fact, you're going to strike out a lot of the times. And if we leave Embanet and go off and do who knows what, there's no guarantee that, that it's going to work. So we have a good thing going here. Yes, it's a risk to walk away from that money, but we're investing in ourselves and we're taking the gamble in ourselves that we'll be able to grow the company and get it to the level that we have in our mind in reality. And at that point, it'll then better reflect what the actual value is. You, and so you, that was the – go ahead, John. Sorry, Jeffrey. Do you, do you recall what the multiple of EBITDA was at that stage? I realized it was less than, than that. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah. I don't. I, I, uh, yeah. I, I think the, the, I don't remember either. And then, you know, we're ramping up. So we're, we're, I don't even know if we're doubling every year. So this is probably – like we said, two years before we sold, maybe a little bit more. I'm a little fuzzy, but I mean, the the multiples might have been, I'm, I could be completely wrong, you know, three with their offering and we end up with like 13 or something, you know, it's, 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 it's exponential, the difference. 
Got it. And so why did the deal fall apart? At what stage did it fall apart? You know, when they presented their offer, uh, which uh, interestingly enough, uh, I I believe their expectation was that we would sign it, you know, right there and and then on, on the spot. Um, but when they presented the offer, we just knew. We we had talked about it ahead of time. One one of the things that was important for us and and uh, for everyone listening, you know, money is a funny thing, because you you have your vision, you have your principles ahead of time. But when money comes on the table, for a lot of people, it just uh, it it changes everything, and and they lose uh, their north star. Uh, for us, we said, okay, guys. This is our vision. This is what we're sticking to, uh, and we're not going to deviate from that. So when when the offer came in, we 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 knew right away uh, that it just wasn't going to happen, and uh, we were grateful for the experience. We were grateful for the learning, but we knew we had to continue on and to show to the world what we knew uh, inside of ourselves of what the company was and where it was heading. Did you try to push them up? Did you say, hey, three three X is not going to work, but but maybe if you got to eight X, we we could talk? Or did you just walk? knowing there was just no way to bridge the gap. You know, they, they made it very clear that this was their, their best and, and final. And, and we knew where, based on the research that we had done behind the scenes, we knew that where they were, that was the, the end of the road uh, as well for that. So we, we didn't uh, look to spend more time or effort or, or money trying to, to get it uh, further. And, uh, you know, when, when you look at it, uh, and, and uh, fortunately, we did say no. I mean, to go from three times to 13 times uh, is just huge. And, and in part, it's us being prepared and us doing uh, the homework, but also having the right investment banker and, and giving the time to the company to to grow and mature and, and get to where it, it wants to to get to. Uh, but for us, the that, that exercise, the other thing that it did was it, it woke us up to the fact that, hey, uh, if we are going to sell this company, um, we got to make sure that uh, we're going to sell it in a way that if we don't want to have to do something, we don't have to. And it, in speaking to other business owners or other entrepreneurs, or you, you read about it, uh, you, you hear all too often, you know, I got caught up in the process. I sold the company and, and that was it. And, and I realized after the fact that, gee, it, it really isn't enough for me. And, and we just didn't want to uh, fall into that trap. I think a lot of people listening have received offers for their business and they're not sure if that's the first and last offer or if that's the, the opening salvo and that there's a lot of room left to move the acquire. What advice would you have for a fellow entrepreneur who's got an offer and it's not, it's not enough for them? Um, how do they know if there's more in the tank for the acquire? If the acquire could double or even triple the offer versus when they should just walk away? Because in your case, it sounded like you were pretty emphatic. You, you didn't think about it a lot. You walked away knowing that that was the best they could do. As an entrepreneur, how, how do we know? How do we know when the, the acquirers sort of maxed out their offer? Well, well go ahead, Steve. One quick, one quick thing, too. I mean, if you can, as in our case, I mean, when you have one option you only have one option and there's you know what what is the pressure to to increase a, the price on on a part of a buyer is just your pressure that you exert if you can have other market pressures or other competitions and in our case eventually we had like 80 people bidding for our company so uh, they it created a huge um, pressure for those people who are serious, they're, they're going to have to compete to get us. Maybe not everybody can do that, but I think one, one thing is just to f- try to create competition, uh, whether it's marketplace or it's, or it's other competitors or other buyers and be prepared to maybe have other offers. Jeffrey, what would you add to that? I, you know, I, I, I would agree. You know, I, I have a saying, one is no, is never a choice. One is never a choice. Two is a dilemma. Three is when you really have a choice. And when you can get multiple offers in, you're now getting validation of where you are at that specific point in time. Now, it may be tomorrow, it can be double or triple, but it could also be half or even less than that. But when you get multiple offers in, it validates where you are and, and what the opportunity is. And, you know, for, for business owners that are listening in, uh, I, I will tell you flat out and in, in speaking to other entrepreneurs who have also been through the process, uh, you will lose some potential buyers who say outright, I'm not going to be part of an auction, not happening. And in our experience, I would say, hey, that's okay. Uh, there's plenty of other buyers that will be out there. And, and the more that you can get into the process and the more that you can get to bid at the same time, the better off you're going to be. 
such a great lesson. So let's jump ahead to the actual final sales. So uh, you built the company up, $18 million of EBITDA. Um, you, you hire an investment banker. Um, they get the data room done and, and so forth. How did, did they come up with the list of the long list of potential candidates to acquire? How, was that a collaboration between you and your investment banker? How did you come up with a long list of potential acquirers? You know, here's where I, I, I give full credit to the investment banker. Um, John, I want to circle back to one of the things that I said earlier on in that we were the industry's best kept secret. And, and this this was probably me more than Steve. I, you know, I'm always the paranoid guy of, hey, if uh, other people find out about us, uh, you know, maybe they'll come in and start to compete with us. So we really w were a world unto ourselves. And uh, just a, a very quick story. When the investment banker first saw our numbers, uh, they, they had never known us before. Uh, they never they, they kind of heard about us, but didn't really. And, and when they saw our numbers, they didn't believe us. They had to run their their own audit uh, on us and just make sure that we were telling the truth and everything, of course, was uh, what we said it was. But they brought that value uh, to the table. And and looking back, and, and I think a great takeaway for anyone who hasn't sold the business or, or is thinking about selling a business, I, I would say today or even yesterday is the time to to develop a relationship with an investment banker uh, not to sell your company but to do some consulting for your company and yes it costs money uh, and and yes it's uh, going to be some time but had we done that ahead of time i i believe they would have obviously had a a much uh, they would have known us it would have been more comfortable uh, with us and, and i believe the value for the company would likely have been more had we had that relationship with them but it was the investment banker that really once we brought them in they did everything they said okay here's who we're going to be sending it to here's the package that we're going to be putting together let's talk about how we're going to position you and, and once we had that they they put that all together and and got that out to the marketplace and you said that you had 80 expressions of interest how, how formal like just a quick phone call yeah you know send me the book versus actual 80 letters of intent how, how well, it wasn't a late 80 intent. Uh, keep me honest here, Jeffrey, but I think we had 80 people initially on the list that showed interest, and that got whittled down probably. It, it, it did, but you, you know, Steve, you're not far off. It, it was at least 80 that, that were interested. Uh, you know, I, I want to uh, put out there, it, it was somewhere between, um, I'm going to say between 25 to 30 letters of, of intent yeah. that, we, that, that we received uh, be, because – uh, again, we had created a new category, and it, it's the old model. If you can't beat them, join them, and that's what uh, buyer saw. And, and then just to clarify, even then the next level, there were probably around a dozen, eight to a dozen people who probably spent in excess of 200000 each just to do financial audits, and then another down to another you know, half a dozen or four that's probably spent a, close to a half a million to do audits. And so it begs the question, I mean, that's a pretty wide auction. Uh, that's a lot, of, a lot of information in the public, although everything's under NDA, I, I get that, but there's still a lot of information you put out there. You know, um, how are you controlling the message to your employees? Have you told them? How are you controlling the message to your customers, your, the, you know, the, the universities and colleges that you're working with? Have, again, have you told them? It's you know it was a struggle uh, for for us that that of, of of the whole process, the before and after on the communication side was was a struggle. You know with, with the employees in in time uh, we we brought people up to speed, and we're very open uh, with them of we're looking at how we can take the company to the next level. We realize that we need some help with that. And we're going to be speaking to uh, different companies that's, who specialize in that, who can help us get there quicker to make us bigger and provide more opportunities for everyone here. So the, the employees were, were excited about that. Uh, and on, on the client side, uh, that, that was a little bit more of, of a slippery slope. Uh, but again, we were open of, you know, we're, we're just exploring different ways of how we can grow the company and looking to work with different people who would like to speak with you and, and find out how we're doing. You know, just uh, be honest with them and, and share your experiences. Because at some point, I'm assuming during the diligence, your acquirer wanted to speak with the universities themselves directly. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those would be delicate conversations, I'm sure. So you had 25 to 30 letters of intent. What was the, the, the gap between the lowest on a percentage basis and the highest offer in terms of letter intent? Like how, how you knew, 
were they relatively the same or how, how big a gap was there? You know, John, one of the things, uh, and here's where having an investment banker, I mean, it's a two-edged sword, but uh, it really worked for our advantage. We had done a lot of research going into this, and and one of the the pain points in the process that we had learned about was a good old bait and switch. You know, somebody comes in with a, a terrific letter of intent, terrific offer. You you uh, give them the nod. They come out with the due diligence, and and they take the offer, and they put it substantially lower. And, and so, one of the things that we had uh, spoken significantly uh, about with the investment bank was, hey. Uh, with the people that you have a sense of who are likely uh, able to pull the trigger or that, that you have that kind of relationship with, uh, please tell them that the bait and switch will be the beginning and the end of any transaction with us. And, and it's just not going to happen. And so that message was uh, put out there. And and for the um, the companies that we had the sense, uh, A, could get the financing to do it and, and B, had the wherewithal to pull it off. When, when we focus on, on those companies, you know, they they were they they weren't that far apart, uh, and this is where the investment banker uh, comes in of of leaning on their experience of um, where do they think the fit is and who's going to be the most likely to take this across the finish line, and so it, it was really a combination of all those factors that that helped us decide with the letter of intent. Um, Steve, would you add anything to that? No, um, I mean this is kind of along the same line, but um, we we incentivized our um, investment banker uh, to uh, we gave him a tiered system so that the higher the price the obviously the larger their their percentage and and instead of um, trying to 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 negotiate them down we we negotiated them up and and that helped in somewhat maybe mitigate that inherent conflict of interest between the buyer and seller between the investment banker. Um, so, you know, that, that helped keep them honest and help, I think in the end, get us a better price. So the investment banker is getting a larger chunk, the better the price they they get. Correct. We had a baseline price that, you know, we were thought was range that we wanted to have to have. And we and they got it. They got a fee for that, obviously, but it was going to be a lower fee. And then we gave them an extremely good fee toward the toward the top end where we thought we, we wanted to be. What did you think it was? Worth? You ultimately sold for 13 times EBITDA north of 200 million dollars, as I understand it. What, what do you what did you think the business should be trading at? Was 13 your number? Uh, for for me, that that was uh, just you know I do a lot of things by just gut feel. I'm I'm um, um, not so much a numbers guy, but uh, more in the other areas. But for me, that that was uh, within the range of of what was there. And you know, um, John, something uh, just popped into mind. Uh, just a very quick story. Uh, we were speaking with the investment bankers, and you know they're all uh, the the uh, financial gurus and and the experts, and and they said you know Jeffrey and uh, and Steve, it, it's a very simple calculation. Someone's going to do it in an Excel spreadsheet, uh, and that's what they're going to come up with the value. And I, I remember we spoke, uh, and, and I said to the investment banker, you know, I, I hear you, but I, I don't believe that uh, because everyone is human, and we tend to make a decision with our emotion first, and we justify it with logic later. Uh, leave it to us. Let us get the story out there. Let us share our passion. Let's make sure we have lots of contact with the buyers so they can see what the future is and, and what we've been able to do. And we said, you know, offhand, you know, where you are right now, throw us a range of where you think we are. And I don't remember exactly what the number was, but they threw, they threw us a range and it wasn't uh, near where we ended up. And I said, okay, leave it with us and we'll do the rest from here. And, and sure enough, when we uh, were able to share our story and, and our passion, uh, it got the buyers excited on the opportunity of, of what was there for them. And, uh, you know, for us, it, it was helping to increase the, the value of the company just by um, getting the passion out there, telling the story and telling what's still left to be done. So what did the investment bankers say if they thought the business was worth on a multiple basis? You know, I, I would put it, uh, a I'm going to say uh, at around uh, 9 or 10. Got it. So they're saying, Jeffrey, be realistic. Throw it in a spreadsheet. They're just going to discount your cash flow back to present day. They're going to project it out, and it's going to be worth 9 or 10 times. And you're like, that, that's correct. I don't buy it. We've got a we got a story to tell. So uh, why did you hire that eye banker then? Like at some point, if you if you felt like you were, I mean, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like much between nine and thirteen, but on whatever it is, eighteen million dollars a year, that's like 
that's like 60 or 80 million dollars of, of value gap. W were you tempted to find another investment banker? No, they, not. They were ahead. the leaders. They were the leaders in the industry. I mean, they had the connections. They 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 were doing. Um, I don't know. I'll you know make it up 70, 80 percent of the of the big deals in the education space. So they 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 were they were the guys to play with, um, and they they proved they proved right. I mean, they really did help us, and I think it was their connections. And, you know, again, we were, we're in a blue ocean. I mean, we're a new category. So, I mean, and, and it took everyone a little while to kind of get their head and their, their numbers around who we were because they're trying to value us on, on past models. Once they saw the reoccurring revenue, the contracts, this, this whole new methodology we had, um, they, they could see that that had a lot of value and that had a lot of potential. Uh, but it took a little, it took effort on our part to show them that so they could show the potential buyer and you know john uh hands down the the investment banker that they the, the credit goes to them uh, and and we just believed in them so much uh, you know it, you have all these big companies and you have these big company names but you're really only as good as the the person or people that you're working with we believed in our investment banker so much that when we did the agreement uh, in our agreement, you couldn't get out of the agreement, but we had one clause. And that one clause was that if um, the investment bankers left that particular company, our deal was off. That's how much we believed in, in the investment banker. And, and uh, I mean, we were literally putting our business future into their hands. And, and so uh, we wouldn't have it any other way. So you had a binding agreement to sell the company with an investment banking firm with the one out being if, if your personal banker, your the, the person that you knew uh, left, then that would give you an out. It's interesting. It's a fascinating strategy. I've never heard that before. But it is. it does beg the question, though. I mean, you know, if you're a homeowner, for example, and you hire a real estate agent, you're thinking of hiring a real estate agent, and they come in and value your home at, you know, uh, 70, 60% of what you think it's worth, a lot of people would, would find another real estate agent. Um, I realize selling a business is nothing like selling a company, but um, and I also get that your banker was the leader in the industry. Um, but at some point, did it did it did it provide? I mean, what? I'm not sure what the question that I'm trying to ask is. Well, we, it's quite fascinating. Well, you know, John, I think what what you're kind of alluding to is, I mean, our personalities, I mean, are ones that we're probably we're going to push it anyway. But you know, I. We've talked to a lot of business owners and people who, I don't know whether it's fatigue of their business, they're tired, they're not even, they're going to just want to take the first offer that comes along and, and not even work too hard to change that. And that's just not our personality. And I would encourage any other business owner, not really, they can, they can extract so much more value if, if they can apply some discipline and, and then work on some things, even though they're frustrated, I know, and maybe they're, you know, aging or whatever the problems are, they want to get out. I think the effort will be worth, worth it if they can stick it in. What kinds of things would you invest in Steve to, to, to ramp up the valuation? You mentioned, sticking it out and, and, and apply some rigor, what, like what sorts of things would you? Well, I mean, we're probably wrapping up pretty soon. I mean, we made, we left money on the table. I mean, you can't be a hundred percent right. You know, we, oh, we didn't build up our management team soon enough. I mean, if we had had a more executive management team, but again, we're entrepreneurs, we run it a lot. It's not in our nature to really hire CEOs and CFOs and, you know, but if we had built that up, we, we definitely left, you know, I'd say 20 points on the table at least. Uh, if we, if we had had our, our data room in a, in a better spot, I think it would have sped up the process. And I, th I think that's something anybody can do. Um, I think they can look at their product, kind of look at, um, how they have their contracts. Are there ways to continue those contracts longer or to, to create a, uh, a, a more uh, visibility for the, for their income stream that people will value that higher and have more reoccurring revenue. I mean, those are a few, I'm sure Jeffrey, you've got some ideas too. Uh, you know, really uh, much of what, what Steve has said, but if you put yourself in the buyer's shoes, 
really what what are they looking for? Uh, they're looking for they want to have the numbers. They want to have all the uh, on the legal side all the uh, contracts and the agreements. Uh, everything's going to be in order. That to me is not an, what I call an order winner. That's an order qualifier. You have to have that if they're even you know consider buying you. But what's then really important uh, in in for me are, are two things: can the company run without you? And on on that note, and and to what Steve was saying, uh, we were a little bit late in in making that happen, and so that was one of our, our our weak spots. And then the second point is, okay, now that we've bought the company as a buyer, what's my upside? What's the future here that you haven't done, or you couldn't do, or you're about to do, or you couldn't think of that I can now capitalize, so I can go back in, not only recoup my investment, but make a, a profit and, and a large one uh, at that. And and when you can put all those in place, uh, now you have something. Um, you know, for us, uh, a lot of those things were in place. We could have done a better job, I think, of moving it further along the line. Uh, but one of the other things, uh, John, just very quickly to, to mention, and this you're not going to find in an Excel uh, spreadsheet or, or cell, but uh, we just had a sense, we couldn't tell you when, but we knew we were at the top of the market. Didn't know when the market was, uh, the bubble was going to burst, but we knew it was fairly imminent. And from that perspective, we said to ourselves, okay, we can wait until we're perfect, although there's no such thing as, as perfection, it doesn't exist, but we can, you know, we can wait and try and make ourselves better. Uh, miss the opportunity and have to wait another seven or eight years and maybe we'll be around, maybe we won't, or we'll make the best of what we have, make the most of what we have and work with the market and just go with the timing and make that happen. An interesting side note, uh, we closed in uh, June. Um, two weeks later, it was June 2007, two weeks later uh, in the markets, that's when the whole mortgage crisis started to hit. Uh, had we been two or three weeks later, the deal likely wouldn't have been done. So from a timing perspective, from a market perspective, we couldn't have timed it any better. Uh, not that we had any, any control of that, but we went with our instincts and and saw where that took us. And, and in this case, it was the right thing to do. Incredible timing. I mean, do you ever feel any survivor's guilt? I mean, so many entrepreneurs went through, you know, the financial crisis and, and, and are really now only digging out of that 10 years later. Um, you guys, you guys timed it perfectly. Do, do you ever feel, I mean, do you pinch yourself in the timing or, or any guilt that, or I don't know if guilt's the right word. Well, you know, I feel uh, a tremendous amount of gratitude. Um, and that's a very long and deep subject, which, you know, we don't have time to talk to today. And, and after the sale, which is a whole nother conversation for another time, um, that is a, that was a, a foundational, um, attitude for me to have gratitude and, and, and see, you know, what, what we were given, you know, we, we worked and, um, to put that in, in the right perspective in a day-to-day -day way. Check yeah, here. I, I, I add to that, you, you know, you can you can have the best company, you can be the smartest entrepreneur, you can have the best team, but what you don't control is is the, the market timing. And uh, we we did a lot of things wrong, we did a lot of things right. Um, from a market timing perspective, um, we just happened to be there and, and it was good, um, uh, more than good. But to Steve's point, at, at the end of the day, when we look back and we look at what happened afterwards, uh, I, you know, I, I'm just so thankful I, and I'm just so incredibly grateful uh, because it it wasn't just us it, it was the entire team it was uh, all of uh, our team members uh, what some people call employees we, we call team members at, at Embanet it was our customers it was all of the accountants and the professionals and the advisors and the investment bankers I mean it was really uh, just a a very large team effort that that happened to work uh, it could have easily not have worked but it did and and for that uh, I, uh, to this day, uh, am, am grateful and thankful and, and count my blessings. Did you choose to, how did you choose to reward your employees? Go ahead, Steve. Uh, well, I know we can both answer the question. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll start. You know, um, it, uh, we, we did a little surprise, um, and we, unbeknownst to them, we, we took uh, a lot of money and we, um, we just gifted it to, it could have been a, a secretary 
who was just very faithful and didn't even really have a lot of responsibility up to someone who was a, a, you know, a responsible manager. Um, it surprised and shocked a, a lot of people that we did that. These weren't performance, um, uh, you know, bonuses or these weren't golden parachutes and, you know, any of that. This was just un, after it was all done out of our pocket, you know, then we write some, rewrote some checks. I mean, that was one way that, that we did it. Can you remember any reactions that you got from when you decided <laughs> to chase? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. Oh, uh, you know, if we had a reality show at the time, I, I mean, uh, people just burst into tears instantaneously. Um, uh, a lot of uh, just crying and, and hugs. Uh, I, I think we may have even had a, a person fainting one or two. Uh, it, it was just, it, it was just surreal. It was over the top, and you know, it, it was just our way of, of just giving back to uh, to the people. And, and and for many people, it was a life changer. Uh, people paid off mortgages or people were able to do things that they thought they just couldn't do. Or some of them happened to just be in, in a tough situation and it just changed your life. And, and for us, uh, it was just our way of, uh, you know, putting your money where your mouth is and, and uh, in a real way saying, hey, thank you. Couldn't have done this without you. We're just so grateful and appreciative. Well, it's an amazing story, guys. I uh, I could I could talk to you for hours, but I, I think we should probably wrap. I um, I'm so grateful for you spending the time and sharing it, uh, Jeffrey. Steve, what is the best way for people to reach out to you if they wanted to say hi on social media, for example? What's what's the best way to reach out? You know, we're, we're both on LinkedIn. Um, my uh, my last name is uh, Feldberg, Jeffrey Feldberg, F E L D B E R G. Uh, Steve's is a little bit easier to say. Um, uh, Steve, go ahead. Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Wells, W-E-L-L-S. And you guys are both on LinkedIn. Well, listen, it's a, it's a great pleasure to have you both. And congratulations on an amazing exit. It was great to have you here. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.